if you're like me, discerning the will of God can often seem totally random at times. Well, should I, should I go to college? Should I not go to college? What should I do this summer? Is now a good time to buy a house? Uh, should I get married? Who should I marry? Uh, do I want kids? How many? Three or two? One, three. Oh, let's just go for five. Brr, wrong answer. Should I adopt? And if we adopt, should it be from Korea or Russia? Because I've heard things about Russia, but then in Korea, you could get stopped up for like six months, da-da-da-da, okay? So, and uh, should, what kind of job should I have? Should I stay at my current job? And then for a select few, small slice of the population, should I be a pastor or a missionary? God, are you telling me to be a pastor? Please, no, 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 please, no. Okay, and then you, you go through it. Um, those are questions that we ask all the time as it relates to trying to discern the will of God. And it's almost like we have these cosmic, you know, uh, divine dice that we throw and hope that we get the answer and hope that what God wants lines up with what we want because it really stinks when what God wants is not what we want, doesn't it? Doesn't that stink? Okay? And so I have found that Christians do some really weird things when it comes to trying to discern God's personal will for their lives. Like, I've known people that were contemplating marriage, and they met him, they met her, they, you know, met the parents, they did the whole thing, they think, they're retching over it. Is this, I don't know, is this the one, is this the one? God, would you show me? Song of Solomon, yes! Okay, you know, and they randomly open the Bible and it just happened to appear at the Song of Solomon, thereby indicating that they should accept the proposal or should propose. Right? Right? Okay. Then, then there's the, uh, I've known people that were contemplating buying a house. They were in that, then in that moment, should we buy, should we buy, should we buy? And then boom, Last night, I had a dream. I dreamt the Lord gave me a vision, Tyler, a vision. And I dreamt that our family was sitting at the kitchen table in that house. Never mind the fact that two years ago, I declared bankruptcy, and the bank has told me there's no way and that they're going to give me a loan. But I just know because the Lord gave me a vision. The Lord just doesn't give people visions like that. And then there's some, uh, sometimes uh, the way Christians will go about discerning the will of God is that... Um, uh, a friend will come into the picture and a friend will sit you down and the friend will say to you, the Lord told me to tell you. I had one of those happen once. Jenny and I were really serious about each other and I was, I was contemplating buying a ring and one of my best friends at the time sat me down and started off with that very phrase, Max, the Lord told me you're not supposed to marry Jenny. Jenny. Jenny's roommate's boyfriend was so angry at my friend that he spent five hours that night looking for him to beat him up. <laughs> and I, for, for 20, even worse, even worse, I allowed him to cloud my mind. And so for 24 hours, I was thinking, well, maybe it's not God's will. That played out really well relationally. <laughs> it took months to recover from that one, okay? So Christians can sometimes do weird things when it, when it comes to trying to discern God's will. I mean, random Bible openings, vision stream, and I'm not discounting that necessarily, but I'm going to talk about some more reliable ways to kind of discern God's will rather than let the Bible randomly fall open because 
what if it falls open to and he spit, you know, spit him out of his mouth or <laughs> and the Assyrian army came and drug them away by the hooks of jaws, you know, that's not good, okay? When the Bible opens to those places. For the average person, for the average person, I believe they really do want to know God's personal will for their life. Um, and, and they believe it when Joel Osteen or Rick Warren says God has a wonderful plan for their life and they're like, I like that, that sounds good to me. Couldn't he just, you know, kind of like, tell me what that is so I don't have to guess all the time, right? Um, And so for the person who's trying to please God, uh, they want to make these decisions that are consistent with God's will. But if I'm going to talk about the will of God, I've got to cue you in on the fact that there's actually levels to God's will. You're like, what? We're going to get into Theology 101 just for a moment. This is necessary, I promise. It's kind of like that thing when the stewardess shows you that there are four exits on the plane. God forbid you don't need to know, but in a pinch, it's really handy to know the exit's one row behind you, okay? So here we go, Uh, and I need that slide. There's three layers to God's will. There's the providential will of God. Uh, You'll hear the Michael W. Smith song, Providence, Providence. I used to always think that he was saying, oh, the heavy, heavy hand of God's providence. So I always kind of felt that way about providential will of God, okay? But this is God's will of decree. Calvinists will often love this aspect of God's will because the providential will of God is basically, hey, God's all-powerful and all-knowing, and guess what? God gets what God wants. <laughs> That's kind of what that means. Trying to figure out how that works is so complicated, I usually just take that and set it aside and go, eh, mystery of God, I won't fully understand that till I meet him on the other side, and even then I'm not so sure. But, but understand that there's this big picture providential will of God that plays out, and that means that what God wants, God gets. Then there's a level down, so to speak, is what theologians call the moral will of God. The moral will of God is God's will of desire. God's will of desire. Um, and this, uh, you'll find in the Bible, uh, comes out when God commands things. You know, let's say, for example, that you're really mad at Joe at work. And God kind of speaks to you and says, hey, could you, kinda like, could you put that gun away and not kill Joe? That would be really cool. Thank you. Don't murder. Please. Um, okay. So the shoulds and shouldn'ts, do this, not that, kinds of things that you find in the Bible... God's moral will, because believe it or not, God actually wants you and me, he wants everybody he made to live a certain way, and God communicates what that certain way is like through the Bible, through the life and uh, person and work of Jesus Christ. So that's a second level of God's will. Then you go down to the bottom rung, and that's the personal will of God, or God's will of direction. That's where all of us tend to live. God, should I live in Cleveland or Las Vegas? I need to know by tomorrow morning at 8, they're going to call me, okay? God's personal will. And so we tend to obsess about this level or this layer of God's will over all the others. This is the who, what, when, where, and how. And we obsess about it because we've bought into this myth about that layer or level of God's will. And the myth that we've bought into is that God's personal will for your life is like a corn maze or a labyrinth. There's only one way in and one way out. If you misstep, it could be explosive. 
And that's kind, of a, that's kind of a general myth that a lot of us Americans buy into when it comes to God's personal will for our life. And I want to kind of tackle that myth today, and I want to talk about uh, the bottom two layers. Um, God's will, let me start off first by saying, God's personal will is not a labyrinth or a corn maze. If you've ever thought that, I would like you to consider over the next several weeks as we talk about the will of God, to set, if you would be willing to consider to set that aside and hear what God has to say through the Bible and, and hang with us as we talk about the will of God. I think it could be very helpful for you, and I think you could find that you're encouraged, that you feel more confident about the things that you're doing and the life that you're living, and feel like God's guidance is much more clearer and stronger. Wouldn't that be a good place to be? Yeah! Okay? So hang with me over the next several weeks. All right? The primary metaphor in the Bible, the primary metaphor is that God is our heavenly father and we're his children, right? And so God is more concerned when it comes to you and I with his moral will for our lives than he is for his personal will for our lives. And you're like, what does that mean exactly? I had a dad. Let me explain how that worked. I remember fretting over whether we should stay in Chicago or move to Kentucky in 1991. Dad, what should I do? You know, I don't know whether I don't know whether I should go to Asbury Seminary or whether I should go to Trinity Seminary. What should I do, Dad? I need to know. I need to make a deposit. Ah! And Dad would go, "Son, I'm going to love you either place you live. I'll come visit you either place you live. I think you'll be fine." No, you don't understand. It's got it's only one option. If I mess up, it, you know, and, and he would, he just confidently, no, no, you'll be, you know what? I think you'll do fine either place. Ah, click. Okay. It just drove me nuts. Now that I'm a dad, I totally get it. I do. I didn't understand it then because I wasn't a dad then. Now that I'm a dad, I totally get it. John Martin wants to live in Cleveland or Vegas. I don't care. What I care about is who he is and how he's living his life. I don't care if he's working in sound and technology in a church of a thousand or if he's working at Pizza Hut. I really don't care. What I care is who he is. Ding! I'm starting to make connections with the way maybe God feels when God says that he's our father and he cares how we treat one another. Okay? So let's wade into this. And I want you to look in the book of 2 Samuel. We're going to actually peer into the life of King David to talk about these bottom two rungs of God's will, God's moral will and God's personal will. And this is the story, the encounter of David and Bathsheba. Okay, so churches are now about to get rated R. All right? <laughs> I know, some of us are like, yes, finally. Okay, David and Bathsheba, 2 Samuel chapter 11. All right? There are all kinds of lessons that get drawn out about this David's encounter with Bathsheba. I love this story. I love what pastors do with this story. It just entertains me to no end. Here's some moralisms that you could draw. Don't go for a walk on the rooftop alone. Don't you do it. It's not good. Don't build a hot tub where the neighbors can see it. Ding. Okay. I've heard all kinds of sermons about David and Bathsheba. This one's my favorite. This is how it plays out, brothers and sisters. First you look, then you lust, 
Once you lust, then you long. Isn't that alliterative? First you look, then you lust. Once you lust, then you long. Love it. It's alliterative. You need to be a pastor and just appreciate the propensity for persnickety, you know, paragraphs and points that can be alliterative. It's fun, all right? But we're going to set all those things aside. Today, today, we're just going to look at the decisions that King David made in light of God's moral will, all right? 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses, let's say, 1 through 4. In the spring of the year when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. Ding! Normally, David should be where? Out fighting the Amorites, <laughs> okay? They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Late one afternoon, after his midday siesta, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. Now, there are all kinds of issues there. What's she doing in the middle of the day? You know, why she knows the palace is a little higher than that anyone on the palace roof can see onto her roof. You know, ah, we won't walk into that, okay? He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam and the wife, important part of our story, of Uriah the Hittite. Verse 4, then David sent messengers to get her, and when she had came to the palace, he slept with her. Yes, teenagers, they had sex. She had just completed the purification rites having, after having her menstrual period. Then she returned home. Um, boom, there it is. You're, David, you're the king. You're on the palace rooftop. You notice this woman of unusual beauty who happens to be naked taking a bath, and you think, Wow. Because you're the king, you don't have to do anything personally. You send your people to go get her and bring her to the palace. A night of passion. You wake up the next morning and you're thinking what she's thinking, which was, what was I thinking? You know, that was stupid. I can't believe I did that. I should have been fighting the Ammonites. Ah, oh, I will never do that again, God. Whew. Stupid. But the story doesn't end there. Verse 5. Later, when Bathsheba discovered that she was, yes, pregnant, she sent David a message saying, I'm pregnant. This is where your mom and dad says, when they say it's going to hit the fan, this is it hitting the fan right there. Okay? Now there's no sweeping it under the carpet. Now there's no, show. I won't tell if you won't tell. Now there's no way that they're going to kind of control this, conceal it, sweep it under a rug, make it go away. <laughs> I will never do that again, God, I promise. Nope, none of that. She's a pregnant, okay? She's a, sorry, I don't mean to transverse into Kentuckianisms, okay? All right? Verse 27. Verse 27. This is the key thing, the last little part of the verse. The Lord was displeased with what David had done. He was displeased. Um, and so uh, you'll often hear Christians say that God hates sin but not the sinner, okay? Uh, let me ask you a question, oh, smart people in the gym today in the year 2012. 
if you were one of David's buddies, and David was kind of processing this decision with you, I saw this woman before he sent for her. I saw this woman, da-da-da, man, she is amazing. I'm telling you, amazing on a scale of just amazing, okay? Yeah, she's got a husband and all that, but, you know, he's off at the front lines. I'm here. She's here. What do you think? What would you say to your buddy, David, you who are smart and wise? What would you say? Is, does God have anything to say anywhere in here that might, might just apply to this particular situation that you might be aware of? Anything, really? <laughs> oh, come on. Nothing comes to mind? Oh, don't commit adultery. Ooh. Oh, yeah, sex with someone else's wife is generally bad. Okay, mm -hmm. that would be one thing, right? Uh, there's another command that comes into play. Don't covet what your neighbor has. She, you know, in this time period would have belonged to Uriah, not David. Okay, she was Uriah's wife, not David's wife. Don't be looking at another person's wife either, okay? Um, then there's something you might not be aware of. There's even a, you know, because... There were 633 commands in the Levitical law. 633. Try and imagine keeping track of that. And you're like, I can't even name all 10 commandments, Max. Okay, that's another story. We'll get to that. All right. So uh, one of those 633 commandments is this. Deuteronomy 23, 9 through 11. Active duty soldiers should abstain from sexual intercourse while engaged in battle. Now, David, as the commander-in-chief, should have been abstaining from sexual intercourse. That was a Levitical law. Don't ask me why they did it. I'm not going to explain that today, okay? But that was one of the rules, right? Uh, and so there are three things that have basically come into play in David's decision to have sex with Bathsheba that he would have known about. It's not like it would have caught him by surprise of, oh, you mean I'm not supposed to? Wish somebody would have told me. This is the same David who, when he had an opportunity to kill Saul, his enemy, didn't because it was against God's law to murder God's anointed, All right? So David knew these rules, this moral will of God, but did what he wanted to do anyway. And so here's the principle. When you and I violate the moral will of God, we displease God. I don't hear like, duh. Okay, but wait, 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 wait. If God cares more about our obedience and consistency with his moral will, do you think it's very likely when we're sweating whether we should live in Cleveland or Las Vegas and we have a moral issue on the table that God's going to give us the kind of clarity that we want when there's this issue right here that he's like, hello, could we talk about that gossip that keeps going on, please? Okay, ding, they're connected. Well... God actually sends someone in. His name is Nathan, and that's chapter 12. So the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to tell David this story. I can't imagine being Nathan. I feel his pain. God comes to you and says, I want you to speak to the king and point out some sin in his life. <laughs> well, let me pray about that. No. <laughs> okay? Because the kings back then are all powerful. It's not like, you know, today where, yeah, they don't have much power at all. It's, back then it was universal. Okay, the king could have easily killed the prophet and gotten another prophet that would tell him what he wanted to hear. And lots of kings after David did th that very thing. All right, so Nathan concocts this story about this little guy, poor guy, and he only had one little sheep, and, you know, this evil 
guy that had gazillion sheep, takes the one little guy's sheep and weaves this beautiful little, what um, Gary Smalley would call an emotional word picture. And it grabs David and David's like, that scoundrel, that person that did that to that little poor little guy and they just had one little sheep, that, mm, that person ought to pay. And Nathan's like, you're that man. <gasps> okay, caught. Oh, this is that hitting the fan moment again. Okay, boom, there it is. You're that man. When you did that with Bathsheba, Uriah only had one. You've got this whole concubine thing going on on the third floor of the palace. You can have anything, anyone you want. And you took what belonged to somebody else, and that's all he had. And you killed him for it. Ouch. David's response is beautiful, in my opinion. In Hebrew, it's just two words. And that's verse 13. I have sinned against the Lord. When confronted with the fact that he was violating the moral will of God, David is like, yep, I did that. No excuses. No, yeah, but you know, and it was, and and she was, and you know, she should have known she shouldn't be there when the king's up on the roof and you know, blah, blah, blah. No diverting, no no blame shifting. Saul, his predecessor as king, was also confronted by a prophet about violating the moral will of God. And when Saul was confronted, Saul did all of those things. Yeah, but you were late, and this happened, and God also expects, so I had to because... You know how that plays out when the moral will of God is violating. There's all these reasons and excuses and all that. David offers none of it. In the second part of the verse, yes, the Lord has forgiven you. Boom. And there it is. Today, I just want to draw out one thing from this passage, and that one thing is this. God's moral will trumps his personal will for your life. Um, If David in that moment had been obsessing about, should I attack attack Rabbah? Should I not attack Rabbah? What should I do? What should I do? God, tell me what to do. God's thing for David would be, that's really great that you're obsessing about that, but I want to talk to you about Bathsheba for a moment. Okay? So here's how this plays out in your life and in my life. And, to, and I want to ask you a question. If in the future, six months from now or two years from now, you should find yourself reading the Bible and God speaks to you and points out something in your life where you're violating God's moral will, would you be willing to, like David, just say, yeah, I, yeah, I did that. Confess and repent. Would you be willing to submit to God's moral will so that God can give you guidance for his personal will for your life? Um, If a friend should actually sit down with you and lovingly confront you about an issue of moral will, would you be willing in that moment to submit to God's moral will for your life? And so that's the question I want to pose. And I actually gave you cards to vote. And in a little bit, I'm going to ask you to vote while we're singing a song. Why would I do that? Because when you make a decision like that, you kind of give God a beachhead in your heart for God later on to go, hey, remember that decision that you made? Yeah, you can do this. You can honor that. We can work this out. This is, you know, okay. So, and here's a practical, here's some practical advice as it relates to these two dimensions of God's will. Because over the next several weeks, I want to talk about how you get guidance on the practical things. But in order to do that, I had to talk about God's moral will today because in God's eyes, that's more important. And so um, 
one thing, one practical thing that you can do is actually read what's in here regularly. And you're like, Bible reading? Yeah, Bible reading. Here's why this is important. Don't you want to know what God wants? I mean, if he's all-powerful, if he's all-knowing, if he's the end-all, be-all of the universe, if it's all about him, doesn't it kind of make sense to know what's going on in his little mind and heart? Well, sure. Okay, so the more you read this, the more you intake what's in this book, the better you know God. And over time, it will cement the things that God thinks is important and that God wants to see happen, God's moral will for your life. In 1998, when Jenny and I were dating... I was clueless about like what she, like if we went to a restaurant, I could not tell you what she would order. I'd be like, spin the dial. Um, I was consistently firing off attempts to please her and make her happy. Pew, misfire, pew, misfire, pew, misfire. Ding. You know, I, because I was acts of service, I was tr- constantly trying to serve her. Ignade. You know, she's, hey, thanks for driving 10 miles to bring me that junk. I don't care. Uh, Okay, so that was 1998. I've been married to Jenny 20 years now. Guess what? I consider myself an expert on Jenny. In fact, if y'all are ever, you know, wondering, well, what could I do for her? How could I encourage her? What did I, I can tell you. Like she loves to get massage coupons just to have, to know that she could get a massage. She's never gone to one, but she loves getting them. Loves getting them. Oh, absolutely. She'd smile, will break across her face. She'd be like, oh, yes, I love this. But she'll never redeem it. I know that about my wife. Tea. Lots of different kinds of tea. Boom. Okay, so how did I get to be an expert? I've been married to her. I've been, I know her now. And so 99.9% of the time when when an option A or option B is on the table or when there's choices and decisions, I know exactly what she's going to decide because I know Jenny, the more you read this, the more you intake what's in here, the more you know how God thinks and what's on God's heart. And you'll find that you can look at people in situations and go, I know how that's going to play out. Why? Because you know how God operates, because you know what's important to him. And that's why this is important, okay? Uh, Regular Bible reading will do that for you. It will give you a a cement for you, what's on God's heart and what's on God's mind and what God's moral will is for your life, okay? 